Right, John chapter 8 this morning, we're going to take a look at. This is not a new series of messages, this is a single message, because it is the 4th of July. Imagine what it would have been like a hundred years ago to be aboard a ship as an immigrant coming into the United States, sailing into New York Harbor and seeing that 305 foot tall Statue of Liberty. What a welcome that would have been. On the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty is an inscription. It's an inscription written by Emma Lazarus from the sonnet, The Great Colossus. The inscription is, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shores, I lift my lamp beside the golden doors. What a welcome that would have been to people who were under oppression and tyranny in whatever country they were coming from and coming into the safe harbor of the United States of America. The 4th of July is considered the greatest secular holiday that we celebrate because in 1776, on the 4th of July, it was adopted by the Second Continental Congress, the Declaration of Independence. It was a great day. But uh, I'd like to remind you that this secular holiday was tied to the faith in God of our forefathers who framed the Declaration and the Constitution. In fact, the second paragraph of the Declaration says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To get that, it's not only personal rights, but endowed by a creator. God created us. Not that are endowed by the protoplasm of evolution of millions of years, the right of life, liberty. No, it's by your creator. They had a strong faith in God. Back in the 19th century, the French government decided to send a team headed by Alexis de Tocqueville to explore the United States and observe what they called this great experiment in democracy. Up to that point, it was thought that if you give people in a country freedom, it will lead to anarchy. And so de Tocqueville observed, and as he observed, he wrote, And among his writings, based on his observation of America, he said these words, America is the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest power over men's souls, and nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is to man, since the country where it now has the widest sway is both the most enlightened and the freest. De Tocqueville, in his observation, tied freedom to the Christian belief. So I ask you a question this morning. Have we lost our freedom in this country? Here we are celebrating independence, liberty, freedom on this 4th of July. But have we as a nation lost our freedom since, as de Tocqueville called it, the Christian religion has within it freedom from spiritual tyranny? Now, today at the Beach Water Park, we have a celebration, Independence Day celebration. 
But it's really centered around one event that will take place this afternoon, a baptism. And, you know, there's a lot of people on the 4th of July, especially this is our biggest baptism. There are hundreds of people will will be baptized. You know, we often sort of kid around. Maybe we should line them all up and turn the wave machine on. Just one massive, boom, baptism. Great, it's over. But we won't do that. But I submit that those are the freest people. They understand liberation. God has set me free. And celebrating the 4th of July has great meaning. What is freedom? It's used four times in the text we're going to look at, beginning in verse 30 of John chapter 8. Jesus uses the term free. Does he mean freedom of speech, freedom of expression, I gotta be me kind of freedom? When he says, the Son will set you free and you will be free indeed. There's three answers to that question, what freedom is in this text. It's freedom from ignorance, first of all, freedom from sin, second, and freedom from death. Let me give you a little background. Jesus, in this chapter, is in the temple at Jerusalem. And he's in a place known as the treasury. And no doubt there are people around him who are listening to his words. He has disciples. He has many of the Jewish people who have come to worship that day. And while he's talking, they bring a woman who has been caught, they say, in the very act of adultery. And they bring this harlot to Jesus. And they say, okay, what do you want to do with this woman? And you remember how Jesus says, as he writes in the stone or on the ground, you who are without sin, come and cast the first stone. Well, all of this leads to a discussion further about Jesus being the light of the world. This angers the Pharisees, the religious elite. And it turns into an argument and a heated conflict. As he is speaking, you can see in verse 30 and 31, while he's talking, some of the bystanders around him believe him, put their faith and their trust in him. As he spoke these words, verse 30, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believe in him, So this part of the conversation is when Jesus addresses those minutes-old believers in Christ. They're just standing there listening, and they go, Yep, that's it. I agree with Him. I believe Him. I trust Him. And Jesus says these words to them. If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The first freedom that Jesus brings up in this conversation is freedom from ignorance, and in particular, spiritual ignorance. Now, we all know that natural ignorance brings a sort of a bondage. The less you know about anything, the more limited you become. You're bound. Without an education, there are, let's face it, certain doors that are closed in life. Certain things you cannot do. And if you are illiterate, even more doors are closed. But in a spiritual sense now, it's really true. Without spiritual knowledge, you cannot thrive. The prophet Hosea cried out, My people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And so liberty is always tied somehow to knowing truth. Being free, knowing truth. The Apostle Paul spoke about those who are always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. 
brilliant people, but they never come to the ultimate knowledge of the truth, hence they're bound. Notice that he says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed, the key to being a disciple or following Jesus is to love his word. A disciple is known by a love for the word of God. And I found this to be true in absolutely every place I've ever traveled. I've smuggled Bibles into China now, and uh, I met contacts who have taken these Bibles, risking their very lives, imprisonment, to make sure that a copy of the Word of God gets to their Chinese brother or sister. Even if that meant one copy of the Bible for 100 people, it was worth it. They loved it. Or if I've gone to India, that hunger, they'd walk miles, literally miles, and sit for literally hours for a church service. It's, it's, it's so different. Rather than like, okay, time's up. It's like, keep going. We've only been here a couple hours. We've walked for miles. Keep going. Now, I get to observe you in the morning um, before church. I, I peek out the prayer room window and I will just watch you coming in. It's great. It's, I'm not spying on you. Well, <laughs> sort of I am. But I notice that you all carry a book because you have a love for it. In fact, one of the great, most refreshing things about this congregation is that you read that book. You read the Bible. You love that book. To you it is God's love letter from heaven and you want to find out what it says. And what's great about preaching in this place is if I say turn to a certain scripture, you can hear it. That wonderful sound of the flipping of onion skin pages. You abide in the Word. Abide means to continue. It means to be faithful to. It even means to have close contact like having a good friend. The word disciple means learner. Put it all together. A learner is a lover of the Word of God. A listener to the Word of God. If you abide in my word, you will really be my disciples. Or as this text says, my disciples indeed. The apostle wrote to young Timothy, you must continue, same idea as abide, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. As from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. You've got the book, Timothy. Continue in it. You've learned it. You know it. Abide in it. John, who wrote 1 John, besides this gospel, said, Let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. So my question to you right now is, what is your relationship with the Word like? It will tell us a lot about your relationship to the God of the Word. If you abide in it, you're His disciples. I love Solomon's instruction to his kids in the book of Proverbs. That's what it is, essentially. Solomon has assembled his children, his sons, and he's giving them God's principles. At the beginning of that book, he says, My son, if you receive my words, if you treasure the commandments, if you would incline or bend the ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, and then cry out for discernment. See how it rises? 
And then finally, and seek for her like silver. If you take the word, the truth, and you listen to it, you bend your ear to it. You start digging and seeking like silver. You treasure it. That's the idea of abiding in the word. You can certainly tell a lot about a person by what they treasure, can't you? Jesus said, Whatever a person, wherever a person's treasure is, there will his heart be also. I heard about a, a pastor who was visiting people in the congregation, and there was one woman who had his, her daughter with her, and um, the woman wanted to make a great impression on the visiting pastor. So she sort of cocked her head back and, and with a spiritual tone said, Honey, go get Mother the book that she loves so much. And, and she was thinking the daughter would bring the Bible, but she brought the Sears catalog <laughs> instead. You can tell a lot about a person by what really is important, by what they treasure. Notice the key is to love the Word, and the results of loving the Word is freedom. Next verse. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The Word, God's Word, tells you the truth. How often have we said, what is the truth? That's what Pilate asks. What is truth? God's Word will tell you the truth about your life. Everybody that pops onto this earth has the same questions eventually. Who am I? Where am I going? What's the purpose and meaning of life? This book will tell you the truth about those issues. It'll set you free. Here's a scenario. Typical guy, average guy, has a job, has kids, has a wife, goes to work, comes home, doesn't think about God, looks at the television, reads the newspaper, repeats the same thing the next day the rest of his life. Suddenly, at work, somebody has enough guts to tell that guy about Jesus. And so now truth has been planted in his heart. So he starts thinking, hmm, never really thought like that. And so maybe he follows up on that lead and he goes to church or listens to a radio broadcast or television or, or reads some books about it or the Bible. And more truths are given to him. He goes, wow, I've learned that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. Up to this point, I thought, I'm okay, you're okay. I don't murder anybody. I don't cheat on my wife. I'm not a thief. I'm fine. But now he's discovered truth that people are alienated from God and need salvation. And then maybe one day that truth so grips him that he gives his life or she gives her life to Jesus Christ. The truth sets them free. Ah, wonderful truth. However, I don't think that Jesus primarily had this in mind, the gospel, although certainly it could mean that. Since he was talking to disciples, they already believed in him. They were already set free by placing their faith in him. When he said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, I think he had in mind specific teachings of Jesus Christ that would set them free from particular areas of their life they were in bondage to. You'll know the truth, the truth will make you free in those areas. Do you remember when Paul the Apostle said that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God? He likened it to a sword And the word he used for sword is like the short dagger used in a close battle where the soldier would strike vital blows to win. Specific areas you'd poke and win. That's the idea of the sword of the Spirit. That's what the Scripture is like. It's uh, We learn certain truths and it pierces our heart. Oh, yes. It sets us free in that area. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. The Word of God 
is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. We don't always like it when it does that. But when we respond to it, we're free. So find out what the book says about marriage. Find out what it says about roles in marriage. Find out what the book says about financial responsibility. You know, we're wondering, should I plan for the future or should I forget planning and just say I trust God? Find out what the book says. You'll be free. Find out what the book says about forgiveness, giving it, receiving it. You want long relationships that really work? You find that stuff out and you'll be set free. I see my life as a process. I am right now in the process of being set free as I read the Bible every day of my life. And I find that I'm still in bondage in areas where the Word of God is not penetrated. That's why I want to read it and read it again and look at it sideways and backwards and front ways and apply it because I'll become free. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you err because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Let me say candidly, that we can't hide anymore behind the excuse, well, I just don't know the Bible very well. So, know it. I mean, there's nothing stopping us. It's a free country. Carve out the time to learn it. Because the more you learn it, you'll know specific truths that can penetrate and dig out those areas we're in bondage to and set us free. Since it is the 4th of July, let me quote Samuel Adams, one of the framers and signers of the Declaration of Independence on this note. He said, the right of freedom being a gift of God Almighty, the rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Amen to that. That's exactly what Jesus said. You're going to know the truth and the truth will make you free. So freedom from spiritual ignorance, first of all. Second, he meant freedom from sin. Uh, Notice in verse 33 that Jesus is interrupted after he makes this statement. There are some people who are listening to this, Pharisees in particular, the spiritual elite. These, I take it, are unbelieving Pharisees that make this next remark. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. Stop right there. Have you ever heard of living in denial? (laughs) This whole group that brings this up is living in historical denial. They are historical revisionists. They are not in touch with their history. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Really? Let's see. 400 years in Egypt, crossing the desert, 70 years in Babylonian captivity, 10 tribes in the north, Assyrian captivity. Let's see. The Greeks took you over. The Seleucids destroyed your temple. And, and, and what kind of coins would be in your pocket at this moment? Would they be Roman coins? Hello? <laughs> that speak of absolute dominion over you? We've never been in bondage to anyone. They were wrong. They were thinking of a genetic freedom. We're Abraham's kids. We're not bound. You know, you can be politically free as a nation and you can be proud that you have a heritage. We ought to be, in a sense. But you can still be bound to sin. 
And that's what Jesus refers to, doesn't he? Notice what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Three things Jesus says about sin. Sin enslaves first. Whoever commits sin, he said, is a slave of sin. A sinful act can lead eventually to an enslavement of that act. It can become a lifestyle. Paul, the apostle, would agree. Romans 6, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves to whom you obey? Now, there's some obvious ways that we know that's true. Alcoholism, drug addiction. There's a lot of addictive behaviors, including pornography. It begins by dabbling. An act is done. One act, a simple act. But that act creates a desire for more. I'm not fulfilled yet. I want more of that. It never does fulfill, but it creates a desire for more fulfillment until that act leads to many, many more acts and we find ourselves absolutely powerless, dominated, where it becomes a lifestyle. And that's the meaning of Jesus in this sentence. Whoever commits sin, it doesn't mean who falls into it every now and then. The word is in the present tense, a habitual, continual lifestyle of sin. Whoever does that, there's no freedom. They're bound. Is a slave of sin. An act can become a practice. A practice becomes a lifestyle. And a lifestyle can become a prison. And so to these proud Pharisees, we've never been in bondage to everyone, anyone. Well, you're, you're without God. You're living a lifestyle of sin. You are bound to that. So sin enslaves. Second, look at verse 35. Sin brings separation. And a slave does not abide in the house. And I want you to notice this word, forever. But a son abides forever. big difference between a son and a slave. A slave is temporary. A son is permanent. A slave is brought into the household to do work, but after a while can be discarded at the whim of the owner. A son, however, even if the son blows it, it's part of the family. The son will get the inheritance. The son will continue to rule and abide forever. The point is clear. Not only does sin bring slavery, sin will separate you from God's house forever if it's never dealt with on this earth. If you're in bondage to sin as a lifestyle and never let God remove that sin, wash it away at the cross, that kind of bondage can separate from God's house forever. Now look at verse 36. The third thing Jesus says about sin, it it requires a Savior. Therefore, if the Son, that would be Him, the Son of God, the Son makes you free... You shall be free indeed. This point is clear, isn't it? Only a son will live in the father's house forever. Here's the solution. Me, the son, can make you a son or daughter, a child. He can bring you into the household. Only Jesus can say, hey, you, come over to my dad's house. Live there forever. I'll make you a child. The Son can make you free, not a slave, free. And you'll be free indeed. How does He do that? 
How does the Son of God, Jesus Christ, make people bound, enslaved to sin, and spiritual ignorance free? By the principle of redemption. He redeems people. In fact, the Greeks often equated redemption with freedom. Redemption means to go into a slave market and, and pay the price so that a slave can have freedom. So a redeemed person is a free person. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ was not an option. It was a divine necessity so that Jesus hanging on the cross could give the great declaration of independence. His first words, Father, forgive them. His last words, it is finished. Paid in full is the literal translation. The redemption price has been paid and I can set people free from their sin. So the cross was God's big eraser to destroy the evidence. You know there is a lot of evidence against you. You know that. You'd be foolish to ever try to stand before God and say, Come on, God, give me what I deserve. That's lame. You don't want what you deserve. You want grace and mercy. You want the evidence destroyed, erased. The cross is the big eraser. I was reading a story this week about John Bolton. He was a prison guard. One day he was escorting a prisoner to an arraignment for attempted robbery, armed robbery. He was going to the arraignment with the prisoner, and he noticed that around the prisoner's neck on a chain was a cross. And what what struck John Bolton, the guard, is that he knew the prisoner was anything but religious. So we wondered, why would the guy have a cross around his neck? And what made him suspicious is something was protruding out of the top of the cross that looked like it could be perhaps a key. And the guard tried, or the prisoner tried to put it under his shirt and said, it's just a good luck charm, no big deal. So let me see that cross. Sure enough, that little cross was a key that could have unlocked the handcuffs. In fact, almost any set of handcuffs, it was so carefully crafted. There was a cross that was able to set that prisoner free. Word around his neck. The historic cross of Christ is able to set any prisoner of sin free from that slavery. The Son can make you free. You're free indeed. I want you to notice something further about this. Let's, let's just press it a little further. Verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, well, if you were Abraham's kids or children, you'd do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. I don't know if you you, you pick up on this interchange. But he mentions their father. You do the works of your father. And he's going to define that in a moment. And they go, well, we're not born of fornication. That was a slur against Jesus because of his virgin birth. There was a rumor going around. Everybody knew that a girl named Mary suddenly comes up pregnant and she's not yet married to Joseph. She was virgin born. However, it became sort of a rumor that Jesus was born out of marriage, out of wedlock. We were not born of fornication, a slur against him. Jesus said to them, 
Well, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came forth from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. How well do you think that went over? (laughs) And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, he just mentioned the slave versus the son in the household. The son abides forever because he has a relationship with the father. And then he says to the Pharisees, you're not of that father. You are of your father, the devil. He makes very clear that there's two possible households in life to belong to. The household of the father God or the household of your father, the devil, as he puts it. So the real issue this morning is not what religion do I have, what church do I go to, but what household are you in? Who's your dad? It's either God or the devil. Jesus said that you're either for me or you are against me is the real issue. Two choices. Finally, third It's freedom from death that Jesus speaks about in this conversation. I draw your attention now down to verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Jesus said, I don't have a demon. I honor my father. You dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. See the progression You abide in my word. You're my disciples indeed. You'll know the truth that will set you free. Not only that, but you'll have freedom from sin. And then finally, if you abide in my word or keep my word, you'll never see death. Now, this does floor them a bit. The Jews said, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. What does he mean? It's clear. Death is not the curtain of life. It's not the final thing that happens. It's just the beginning. And for the believer, it's the transition. You know, I've always thought that it's inaccurate. Whenever a Christian dies, or we say passes away, whatever term, it's always inaccurate. I think it's inaccurate to say he died. It's better to say, and more accurate, he moved Whatever happened to him? Oh, he moved. Where? We moved to heaven. That's the truth. He'll never die. Jesus said to Martha, the daughter, or excuse me, the sister of Lazarus, when she said, why didn't you come, man? My my brother Lazarus is dead. You could have done something. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And if you believe in me, though he were dead, speaking of Lazarus, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to the Pharisees once again in John chapter 5, whoever believes in me passes from death into life. A wonderful transition. That means this. We live our lives. We get set free from sin. We get set free from spiritual ignorance. We know how to live and we can face death with confidence. Now I want to clear up an issue that I think has become an issue within the church concerning death. Every now and then I'll come across a Christian who has sort of a a, a dour or um, a macabre view of death. Almost like, yeah, man, this life is a real bummer. I can't wait to just die and go to heaven. 
as if that's how we're supposed to live. Yeah, great, man. Let's just get it over with. Because when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I don't feel that way personally. I love life. I want to live as long as I possibly can on this earth for this reason. This is the last opportunity I will ever get to lead a person to Christ, to suffer for the gospel, to influence people in their walks with Jesus Christ. The opportunities here are here on earth. I want to be used by God. However, when the time comes and God's done using me, why hang around? I'm ready. I can face it with great confidence. I'll never see death. When a husband lost his wife, somebody in the church walked up to him and said, I'm sorry, I heard you lost your wife. She had died. The husband smiled, put his arm around him and said, You never lose something when you know where it is. She's not lost. I know right where she's at. She's safe. She's home. She's with Jesus. Finally, notice the difference between these two verses. In verse 44, Jesus says, Concerning the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. What does a murderer do? Takes life. Compare that with verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. See the difference? Satan takes life. Jesus gives it. So we can almost hear Jesus standing this morning saying, Give me your tired, your poor. Give me the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden. That's liberty. I'm going to close this morning with a quote. I'm not going to tell you who said it till afterwards. I'll suspend it. I'll let you guess. It was given by a prominent leader, and it is a strong admonition to this country. Quote, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power and confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Close quote. You might say, yeah, Billy Graham. Wrong. The President Abraham Lincoln. On April 30th, 1863. Things have changed. The President of the United States realizes we as a nation have grown and become intoxicated with power and have lost the meaning of true freedom. And we need to get back to coming before God and humbling ourselves and seeking Him. Because we were given those rights, those inalienable rights, by our Creator. And only when we are in right relationship with Him are we free. Free indeed. If not, we are bound indeed.
Father, we pray that we would learn and live in the true meaning of liberty. This country enjoys so many privileges, but though we may be politically, though we may be nationally free with no power looming over us, yet we can't help but sense a national bondage for a nation that has forgotten God, as the president of this great country once said, Abraham Lincoln. And as Jesus himself said, he who lives a lifestyle of sin is bound, enslaved. So, Lord, set us free, free of ignorance, learning truth, loving truth, abiding in truth, free from sin that enslaves, that separates, that requires a Savior. Lord, I would pray for anyone who has come, who is not a believer, that you would set free from sin and from death. And then, Lord, those of us who know you still understand that we can be in bondage in particular areas of our life, besetting sins, Hebrews calls it. We need your intervention, your great grace, your miraculous work to set us free. Because an act has rendered us powerless. Because it is eventuated in bondage. Set us free, Lord, all of us in those areas as we call upon you. And as we continue to pray and call on the Lord, if anyone has come who is honest enough to admit up to this point I've gone to church and been religious but never committed my life personally to Jesus Christ, I'm willing to admit that and I'm willing right now at this point to do that, to surrender to His redemption and be free, be bought out of the slave market, come to know God personally. If you want that and you mean it, would you raise your hand? We'll acknowledge your hand and we'll pray for you as we close this service. But you need to make that choice. Raise it up high so we can see it. God bless you, ma'am. I see your hand. Anybody else? Raise it up. Toward the back, in the front, in the middle. Way in the back, a few of you. Off to the side, in the front. Lord, what a great day of liberty it is. And so we pray for those who have come that you would set them free. We pray, Lord, for their future, that as they say yes to Jesus Christ, that the raised hand would would become more than that. It would be a committed life as they step out of bondage into great liberty. In Jesus' name, amen.